Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be camping in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, uh, verses um, 7 to 16. And there's also paperback Bibles, I believe, in your pews, uh, if you'd like to use those. And as you're turning there uh, today, let me ask you a question this morning. Do you feel lonely? Do you feel lonely? So I don't necessarily mean that you're the only bookworm in your family or uh, that you live in a house by yourself or that you uh, ran a marathon with your friends and they outpaced you and so you're kind of left in the dust. And I don't mean less than those things, but do you feel constantly misunderstood by people? Do you feel as though... Nobody really appreciates your accomplishments or gifts and talents in life. Does it seem as though the presence of all of your closest friends and family in the same room leaves you no more comforted than when they weren't there at all? There was a a movie that came out in 2009, and uh, Robin Williams played the role Lance Clayton in The World's Greatest Dad, and he said this, I used to think that the worst thing in life was to end up alone. It's not. The worst thing in life is to end up with lots of people who make you feel alone. And as you know, Robin Williams uh, turns out to be his own case study. We were shocked as uh, America and really the world at large to learn in August of 2014 uh, that Robin Williams, the great comedian, had taken his own life. And let me... Before I even go on, let me just stop and say we, uh, Courtney and I and our family, we have experienced the effects of suicide uh, on a family. (laughs) And it's not an easy topic to talk about. And I even slightly hesitated to bring up Robin Williams uh, for that reason. And uh, it's kind of an easy illustration. But uh, let me just say that suicide is a very complex issue. And there's a lot of dynamics at play oftentimes sicknesses are involved, so I don't bring this up lightly, but uh, I want us just to acknowledge the, the sadness of suicide and the sadness of taking one's own life. It's a hard and difficult thing, and some of us in the room have experienced that firsthand. But uh, when we look at someone like Robin Williams, think about uh, the genie from Aladdin or Teddy Roosevelt from A Night in the Museum, or Professor Brainerd from Flubber, and you, you think about this fun, exciting, awesome comedian uh, that many of us love dearly, and, and we think about the fact that he had a degree from Juilliard, the fact that he had a wife and children who loved him, uh, he had a net worth of $50 million on the low end, Uh, possibly more, and the admiration and love of millions of people around the world. And so we look at a person like him and say, how on earth could someone like this have all the things in the world and yet still feel so alone? And Robin Williams had that American dream, that 
thing that some of us criticize on a regular basis, but if someone were to hand it to us, we would probably accept it willingly. The same American dream that many of us long for and yearn for, but feel so far away from, especially during the holidays. And so if we can have it all and yet feel otherwise, or if we can do it all, and yet it seems as though our accomplishments don't matter at day's end, then what's the point? How do we make sense of the loneliness that pervades our daily experience? And this very question is the question that our text is going to answer for us. And so uh, let's turn our attention to the passage for the answer. And uh, if you would, look with me at Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one doesn't need to spend a whole lot of time in Ecclesiastes before we encounter sort of its odd place in our scriptures. Uh, First of all, it's pretty pessimistic. Uh, Some might say realistic, uh, but it doesn't really talk about uh, the experience of life all that positively. There's no mention of redemptive historical figures, and even God himself only shows up a small handful of times. And even in our passage, uh, God himself isn't mentioned. And so uh, it's wisdom literature, pretty much in its purest form, just commenting on the human experience. And so uh, the narrator identifies the teachings as being from the son of David in chapter 1. But since the Hebrew title doesn't really, uh, oh yeah, there's our passage here. Can I click through? For some reason my clicker has stopped. We're going to move on. Um, the Hebrew, Hebrew title title King Solomon, so for our purposes, we're just going to refer to the author uh, in our passage as the teacher. And so uh, the teacher here essentially is assembling with a group of folks outside of Jerusalem in about the 10th century BC, and this would include a wide socioeconomic range of people. Uh, it's an agrarian society, so you would imagine a lot of farmers, a lot of royal officials, um, so on. And in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, we're basically part th- partway through this journey that the teacher is taking us on to basically search out the meaning of life. He essentially went on this journey to see 
hey, if I go for all the things of the world, if I acquire all the people and the resources and the fame and the honor and all the physical things and all the social things, uh, will it amount to anything? Will I feel uh, as though I have reached my purpose in life? And so he concludes throughout uh, that that's his thesis uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes that all is meaningless, uh, that essentially all is vanity. Uh, We go after all these things and we work really hard and then it amounts to nothing. Um, But as we see here in our hint, uh, essentially what he's trying to bring across to us is that if God isn't a part of the picture, then all the things that we're chasing after uh, essentially is a futile thing. It's it's an effort uh, that's a wash. And so as we come to our text, uh, the teacher had been talking about this frustrating dog-eat-dog world that we live in, where we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people, we're constantly jealous of what the next person is doing, we're looking around, we're kind of seeing, do I matter, do I have worth, do I have value? And when we come to the text, we basically see two situations uh, that the teacher is bringing to mind, Uh, and both of those situations are sort of tales, and so uh, we have uh, that, let's see, There we go. Uh, Three scenes that we're going to be looking at today. And that first one uh, is the tale of the solitary rich man. And we're going to take a look at the tale of the solitary good king. And then the teacher is going to have a proverb for us that's sandwiched in between those two things. So let's go ahead and take a look at that first one. Uh, This first short account has a little bit of a tinge of humor as we see this solitary rich man. And uh, if you look with me at verse 8, Uh, It says, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? And so it kind of seems like there's this man who he's uh, just going on and on, trying to acquire more things, trying to do more things, and it sort of begs the question, why are you working so hard? And Uh, We might think this is literally that he has no physical offspring or siblings, but uh, one version of the Bible puts it this way, a certain man without a dependent, a solitary person completely alone. So it seems clear that this man is working like a dog and chasing his tail, and the teacher says even though he's going after pleasure, He deprives himself of that very thing. The Atlantic had ran an article uh, a couple years ago called The Loneliness Loop. How shopping makes us sad and how sadness makes us shop. And essentially what it's talking about is this idea that particularly during the holidays, uh, there's something about the human condition that has us convinced that if we just acquire more things, if we just gain more accolades, more trophies, uh, what have you, then we'll be complete. We'll feel better. And it's a vicious cycle because it's that very sense of emptiness that leads us to go after those things. And the more of those things that we get, the more it leaves us feeling unsatisfied and empty. And so uh, round and round it goes. I think of when I left for seminary, uh, I, so 
Pastor Brian is my mentor in Central Indiana Presbytery, and before I was sent off to seminary, he gave me a bit of a charge. And uh, the, the passage that he used uh, really stuck with me, and it's still something I think about on a daily basis, and it was from 1 Timothy 4, and Brian said, watch your doctrine and your life, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so I didn't quite know at the time, you know, some four years ago, exactly what Brian was going for when he used that verse, but it makes sense to me now that now that I'm in seminary and I'm studying full time, I'm submersed and soaked in some of the deepest truths of the divine. I'm studying the Bible. I'm excited about God. I'm excited about ministry. And yet I chase the things of the world. Yet I see how I'm so busy and I'm consumed and I I get stressed and I I think that if I just go do more things, if we uh, pay off our debt and we somehow get financially free and we get a house and we start having babies and all these things, I start chasing all these things and I'm assuming that somehow those things will complete me or they will make me feel better. And as a matter of fact, chasing after all those things, while they're wonderful blessings from God, oftentimes can just beg the question, what's the point? All I really got out of this was a lot of stress and a lot of performance treadmilling, but uh, not a whole lot of Jesus in the process. And so when we look at our passage, I think uh, this really provides a warning for us that Efforts to comfort oneself with riches and pleasures will not cure our loneliness. And maybe you look at verse 8 and you say, well, this isn't me. Uh, Maybe you struggle with the busyness thing. Maybe you struggle, Cody, with going after the things of the world. But I'm pretty content. And I'm pretty okay with life as it is now. But if we look at our passage, it's saying that this man is essentially chasing after an unhappy business and to assume an unhappy business is to assume that there's a happy one to mention the rich man's failure to ask whom he is toiling for is to assume that there's someone he could be toiling for so if we are to fight against loneliness we must take jesus seriously when he says that we must not store our treasures Uh, on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but we must store our treasures in heaven. And uh, as we do that, as we give ourselves to God, as we essentially say my core identity, my heart, and the things that I care about most are in God and not ultimately in the things of the world, the sooner that we can get to work, the sooner that we can get to caring for other people. So Uh, the natural response to this passage then might be to say, well, away with the corporate ladder, away with financial advancement, away with caring about doing anything, really. And that's not what the teacher's telling us. Uh, The teacher's telling us that we need to work hard, uh, but we need to realize who we're working for. Uh, We need to have a healthy margin and rest. So are you resting? Are you taking time to acknowledge that the things of the world don't ultimately satisfy. See, if we pursue our Tower of Babel, building uh, this 
name for ourselves, the teacher is telling us that this is a lonely business, using language from the corporate world of commerce and ultimately a chasing after wind. But the teacher has another example for us. Uh, let's look at the, the tale of the solitary good king in verses 13 to 16. Here we see the anecdote of the solitary popular king. And you might think that the teacher is going to happily commend wisdom when he says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. <laughs> but unfortunately, the people end up no better off with the wise guy uh, than they did with the foolish one. Uh, this king had even, he was your typical rags to riches story, uh, poor man and rose to the throne uh, based on good virtue. Uh, this man had committed himself to improvement and change, and he ends up in this wonderful position of influence, and uh, yet the people don't seem to care. Eugene Peterson notes uh, in verse 16 that the excitement died out quickly, and the people rally for this young, wise successor just enough to make a little bit of noise, but they were not ultimately pleased or inspired by him. See, the people are so remarkably foolish that they don't even recognize a good leader when he's before them, when he's right in front of them. And appropriately, the teacher says, this is vanity too. What a complete waste. Goodness is right in front of you and nobody seems to care. What a frustrating situation. So if we think about loneliness, it's true that oftentimes loneliness is our own fault. Sometimes we go after the things of the world. Sometimes we have nobody else to blame but ourselves for the fact that we're lonely. But that's not always the case. See, loneliness is as much self-imposed as it is others-imposed. Sometimes it's circumstantial. And loneliness may not be your choice today. You would prefer anything but loneliness, and yet loneliness is what you're getting. You have gifts, you have beauty, you have talent, you have dignity and worth, and yet the people in your life, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, just doesn't seem like they care. Well, you're not alone. I uh, asked a couple very successful friends and family members of mine uh, to tell me a little bit about their experience of loneliness. And I think while all of us experience loneliness in lots of different ways, I, I think everybody knows to some degree what it's like to be lonely. It's not all created equal. Not every person in this room equally understands what it's like to feel the weight of the particular kind of loneliness I'm referring to now. So let me go ahead and read a couple quotes from friends and family members. I'm a divorced, empty nester of three kids. One is deployed, one is off to college, and another is married with four kids. I have a two-story house all to myself. I drive to work and home, and that's it. Nobody calls or texts me. The winter months are the hardest. Most days I clean the same things twice, or I will leave a dirty spoon in the sink just so I have something to do tomorrow. I had to start taking antidepressants because I just don't see the point in getting out of bed. I joined a billiards league, but I never attend anymore. I only eat fast food, 
and I haven't cooked a single meal since July. I just wish I had a close friend. And ever since moving to a big city to take a big job, I haven't known where to start. I try a little, but I'm practically invisible to people. To cope, I'd invite a bunch of people over to do laundry at my place for free. And I would go into more debt just so they would all have free pizza on top of $100,000 in student loans. I cannot face coming back to an empty home since I am same-sex attracted and recovering from a porn addiction. But I want to be faithful to God. I just feel like I'll always be alone. As a matter of fact, I cannot remember the last time I got a hug. So, as we think about those different situations, it leaves us with another warning, doesn't it? That efforts to commend oneself with popularity or success will also not cure our loneliness. So it seems that the answer to uh, loneliness is to simply be around people, and yet even people often disappoint us. All of us in one way or another want to be loved, we want to be admired, and we all have spheres of influence and leadership even, and leadership is a very lonely place to be often. You have influence in your home, you have influence at work, you have influence in your neighborhood, and oftentimes it seems like in a broken world, there's no way for us to really escape loneliness, and for some of us, it seems like that loneliness is not just in temporary moments or days or weeks, but it lasts months, it lasts years even, and people seems so fleeting. You can pursue really good virtue. You can be a faithful member of your church. You can love, you can even have a wife and several kids, love your family dearly, family loves you dearly. But again, that Robin Williams thought of you can be completely surrounded by people and yet still feel completely alone. It's a feeling that pervades our experience and it's part of the fall. It's a part of sin entering into our world and the fact that we live in this lonely world. Look no further than the internet. Get online and you will see loneliness all over the place. So does the pursuit of godly wisdom even matter then? If you can do really good things, if you can pursue godliness and still feel alone, does it matter? Well, if we look at what our teacher is saying here, this seems to be kind of his frustration. But no, evil shouldn't win the day. No, what, what's, what's right and good is that people who are faithful, people who pursue godliness, are respected by people. They're admired by people. They're celebrated. And yet, we live in a world where that's not always true. And today we see this, uh, particularly this frustration in the, what, what I'm calling the anti-church movement. So, uh, there are many reasons why there are Christians, people who love Jesus, who've given their lives to him, um, who value uh, the things that the Bible values, and yet they say, I don't need the church. I don't want to attend a church. Why would you? I served faithfully for years. I loved people in this ministry. I went out of my way. I was a greeter. I was serving in the coffee ministry. I was taking care of the kids in the nursery. And it was like I was totally invisible to people. What's the point? People in my small group, they don't even say goodbye when I'm leaving the room. And why would I attend a church? Well, if that's you this morning, 
and it's a new year and you've come in to church kind of nervous, just kind of slowly making your way in the room, can I just say that I'm sorry? I'm really sorry that oftentimes the church can be just such a disappointing place to be because you're gathering in a room with really imperfect people. You're gathered in a room with a lot of people who have their own sense of loneliness, their own struggles. And oftentimes, we don't take the time to go out of our way to care for you, to ask you how you're doing, to ask you how we can be praying, to invite you over to our house to do this or that. But let me also say that if the answer to our loneliness is not pursuing the riches of the world, and the answer to our loneliness is not simply pursuing some sense of popularity and success, well, it would seem that God himself is the answer. And this is the place uh, where we come together to worship God. We come together uh, to be in his presence. And so uh, we need the church. And I want to argue that we need the church because we need God. And he designed us not just for uh, horizontal relationships, but also for a vertical relationship that informs the horizontal. And so as we start a new year today, I just want us to think about Christmas. So Christmas is still going. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but um, Christmas in the church calendar goes until January 5th, so that's where we got that uh, partridge and a pear tree song, uh, 12 days of Christmas. And so this is still a time, isn't it great that during the time of the year where we're most tempted to feel isolated, and lonely that we get to take this time just to think about Christmas. We get to think about Jesus coming into the world as a baby and dying for us. He specifically can't, we just talked about that uh, with the children, he came to die for us. And I think as we think about Jesus coming into the world, when he died, he died for the church. Ephesians 5 says that the church is the bride of Christ. And so these are in the room. If you are someone who's turned from living life on your own, you've turned to Jesus uh, for your salvation, for your life and hope, uh, that this is your family. Uh, this room that we gather in uh, is a way of acknowledging uh, that Jesus died for the church. Uh, the church is his bride. And so uh, that's why even in our messiness, even in our divisions, even in our differences, uh, that we gather in this room together saying that we're family. And so my encouragement as we start a new year is just to think about uh, how important it is that we give ourselves to one another in this room. And uh, Tim Keller himself puts it more strongly, saying that the, the involvement that we have in the church is actually integral to being a Christian. Uh, it's actually part of what it means uh, that we follow Jesus. And so he says this quite strongly. If something is truly integral to a body of thought, you cannot remove it without destabilizing the whole thing. A religion cannot be whatever we desire it to be. If I'm a member of the board of Greenpeace and I come out and say that climate change is a hoax, they will ask me to resign. I could call them narrow-minded, but they would rightly say that there have to be some boundaries for dissent, or you couldn't have a cohesive, integrated organization. And they would be right. It's the same with any religious faith. So, we need the church. And like the wise young king, some of us might be written off. Some of us might be ignored. And some of your gifts may go unnoticed. 
but we must press on in love and service, knowing that God sees you, God knows what you're doing, and God is pleased with you if you are his child. He loves you and adores you. 1 Timothy 6.6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And there's a way for us to be godly and content in such a way that says, I don't ultimately need the affirmation of people to feel complete, even though we need people. It's a bit of a paradox. And so, rather than leaving us guessing, the teacher goes on to give us a proverb. And so, if we look at verses 9 to 12, he says, two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. Now, remember, in both of these stories, we've got uh, two men who essentially are chasing, on the one hand, riches and pleasures. On the other hand, chasing popularity, success, and both being disappointed in various ways. And yet, we see the teacher goes on to expound uh, this idea of needing another person. That two need to work together. Uh, they have to humble themselves, and they can accomplish so much more together than what they would accomplish if they were apart. And this is the point of our passage. And the teacher goes on to expound it with no less than three illustrations. He says, if one falls, another can help him up. Uh, warming one another up even. And if an enemy poses a threat, you've got each other's back. And so it's obvious in every way that two is better than one. But three is even better. So I continue to be amazed at how much better my miniature wiener dog understands that concept than I do. And she kind of drives me crazy because she's a small dog, so she's yippy. But Basil, it, it's amazing. If I fall and I hurt myself, she instantly comes and starts licking me. If I lay down on the couch and I'm watching TV, she jumps up on the couch and jumps in my lap and tries to snuggle in between my legs and cuddle with me. And if someone comes by the house, uh, either someone knocks on the door or they're kind of walking down our street, she starts barking like crazy. And I kind of hate that she does that, but it's still kind of cute that she, she, you know, she's this big, and whatever is probably walking by her house could completely own her. But just the fact that she would make this noble attempt to protect me and to, to try to guard against the enemy is a really cool thing. And I wonder if we have something to learn there from the loyalty of dogs, from uh, that sense of companionship, that sense that uh, when we come in the door, the very first thing that we experience is Basil running to us with her tail wagging. She's really excited. And, you know, this is the model that we're called to. So on one extreme... You've got replacing people with things. And if you replace people with things, it's sort of like putting your hands in your socks. They make really entertaining puppets, but it's just not what they were designed to do, giving our hearts to stuff. But on the other hand, you've got this idea of using people basically for your own purposes, or assuming that people are going to praise you or they're going to care about you. Uh, and oftentimes, people have their own lives. They're not uh, going home and thinking about you all the time, and that's really difficult. Uh, how much I would love that. How much uh, we all 
would like to know that people are thinking about us. So we see right here in this passage, uh, the teacher's answer, that efforts to surround oneself with healthy relationships are worth it in our fight against loneliness. And this is the triune God's intention, that we would have mutual love and service for one another. Genesis 2.18 is a key verse in our Bible because it says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And we can see throughout the Bible how it's not good that the man should be alone. And even though we feel this sense of loneliness, even though you might be feeling that sense of loneliness today, the good news is God's not going to forsake you. This is what he told Israel. As a matter of fact, the greatest command in the Bible was fear not, used the most number of times more than anything else. And the reason, because I am with you. Fear not because I am with you. I will neither leave you nor forsake you. And so think about Jesus. Think about the moment that he was hanging on the cross, dying for your sins and mine. What was the cry that Jesus cried out on the cross that we remember? Say it with me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think if I were to speculate that the very last feeling that Jesus felt before he died on the cross was a remarkable sense of loneliness. His disciples left him, Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him, and he's just hanging there thinking about the fact that even his father turned his face away for us, that Jesus was abandoned, and this was specifically for the purpose of curing our loneliness giving us hope, giving us a community. So take a moment with me just to imagine what your ideal version of community is. What is it that you're longing for today? What kind of companionship do you wish was the case in your life? See, there's going to be a day when Jesus returns that we will be in perfect community, perfect give and take, perfect interdependence, not too needy or too isolated, and we'll all be with God, and it will be wonderful. And I really look forward to that day. And there was a time in my life where I said, God, I do want you to return, but I want you to return after I go do all these other things first. And I think it seems the older that I'm getting, and I'm not even 30 yet, I'm just thinking more and more, no, Jesus, come. I want you to come back. I want you to come back as soon as possible. Because this picture is much better than what we're experiencing now. And maybe your loneliness will never go away, this side of glory. Maybe that feeling will be perpetual for you. But the day is coming. So live on and hope on. I want to leave us with a few questions uh, as we think about this idea here, Jesus providing himself, um, and in the midst of that, we're called to be in relationships with others intentionally by faith. So let's take a moment, uh, just silently, to look at the screen and think about these three questions today in closing.
Well, friends, the good news is we don't have to live lives alone. And as Jesus has died for the church, he's also given us the church. And so this is your family right here in this room. And if you're new here, we're glad that you're here. It's a joy to get to worship with you this morning. And I would just invite you to take a moment. If someone doesn't come up to you, just seek out, seek out, out, out Mr. Bob or uh, another person and just let them know who you are. Let them know uh, that you're just checking out New Life, that you're visiting. And uh, we would love for this to be a place for you to belong and, and to feel welcome today. Um, for those of you who attend New Life regularly, take a moment and notice around you uh, the people that you don't recognize. And uh, that's why we have that greeting time uh, incorporated into the worship service because this is a wonderful time uh, just to get to know your family and, and to welcome other people into it. Uh, friends, we've been given one another, so my encouragement is for us to step out and take a hold of the gift that God's given us, and our livelihood depends on it. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you are the three-in-one God, the God that is unbreakable and in perfect community. Since the beginning of time, you never worked alone, but you always, together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, accomplished your purposes uh, for us in the world so that we could accomplish your purposes in the world. Help us to fight loneliness, not with pleasures, not with riches, not with successes, not with popularity, but with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus and with the church that you've given us. For those who deal with a particular kind of loneliness, an addiction, a loss, a death, a longing that's not met, God, would you comfort them today with your Holy Spirit? Would you give them hope? And Father, would you help me, help us as your people to go into the world and notice the lonely people in our midst? And Father, I believe as we love those who are lonely, we'll even start to move in the direction of curing our own loneliness because you called us to be in relationship with you and with others. Lord, how good it is uh, when the family of God dwells gather for faith and in unity. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.